You're listening to a sermon preached at Meridian Church. For more information about Meridian Church, visit meridianchurch.com. It is our hope that this sermon is used by the Holy Spirit to minister to you the grace and peace found in Jesus Christ to the glory of God the Father. And now, here's your sermon audio. Open God's holy word to the Gospel of John. Gospel of John chapter 2. John chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour is not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding twenty or thirty gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, did not know where it, had come, where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Holy Father, here recorded for us, your people, the disciples of your your Christ, your Son, our Lord, is this sign which we are privy to insight just as, as the disciples were. We see what others don't see. But we come to you, Father, with a prayer that they would see, that you would grant sight, that they would see the significance of what's laid before us, that we would see it anew, and it would strengthen our faith, it would birth their faith, that we would see something of His glory, and we would believe. In Christ's name I pray, amen. This, the first of His signs, verse 11. This is the first of Jesus' signs. John will record five, I'll argue six in a bit, stick with five for now. John will record five more for us in this gospel. And they're all in the first half of this book. Half of them are explicitly referred to as signs. All of them in the first half of this book, chapters 1 through 12, which is why this first portion of John's gospel is known as the book of signs. Not a sign in the second half, chapter 13 onward, except for one massive one. Here's the first of... Six. Second would be the healing of the official son, chapter 4, 34 through 54. The third, the healing of the, that happens at the pool on the Sabbath, chapter 5, verses 1 through 45. The fourth, the feeding of the 5,000, chapter 6, verses 1 through 15. The fifth, the healing of the blind man, chapter 9, 1 through 12. And the sixth, the raising of Lazarus, chapter 11, verses 1 through 44. Now, since in this gospel we find seven I am statements, I am the bread of life, I am the light of the world, I am the door, I am the good shepherd, I am the resurrection and the life, 
I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the vine. Seven I am statements. And then also we find seven absolute I ams. There's no predicate that follows. Jesus just says, I am. Since we got those sevens, and there, there are some others, some of them you have to strain to see what some of the scholars are saying is there. But those two are clear. So with those sevens, some scholars are really eager to find a seventh sign and come up with different answers to that question. And the clear forerunner is Jesus' walking on the water, chapter 6, verses 16 through 24. And you might wonder, why is that one ever even excluded at all? Why is that a question? Isn't that a sign? The reason is because some scholars have come up with some kind of technical definitions and they disqualify that sign, that act, because it wasn't public. It was just the disciples who saw it. But I think that their disqualification is disqualified by this sign, which is clearly called a sign, and the only ones that are privy to it, as I read it, are the disciples and the servants that are involved. No one else is in the know. So I think it's clear that there are seven signs in the first half of this book, with that one being the one that's excluded by many in their reckoning. Other persons would propose the cleansing of the temple, But I don't think that qualifies as a sign, but I will argue that the wedding at Cana and the sign Jesus performs there and the act that he performs in cleansing the temple, that those two acts are set forward at the beginning of Jesus' ministry for a reason. They they encapsulate it in a way. They, They get at, I think, what John was saying that they have beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten Son of of the Father, full of grace and truth. And so those two are set forward to introduce us to Jesus' ministry. So, seven signs in the first book, and then the second half of John's Gospel, chapters 13 through 21, there's not a sign, one except the sign of signs that comes at the hour that Jesus is referencing here. That would be the sign whenever Jesus is lifted up, both on the cross and from the grave as a singular act, the sign of signs. Remember that, remember John's purpose statement for this gospel follows them beholding the resurrected Christ. And then John says, Jesus did many other signs. Chapters 13 through 21, there's not a sign, one that's just referred to as a sign, but now with the resurrected Christ in front of them, John says, Jesus did many other signs. The Last half of this book is dedicated to one singular sign. Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. So, what exactly then is a sign? doesn't need to be public. That is not essential to what a sign is. That's not the essence of what a sign is. What is a sign? What John intends by that word, I think, can be grasped by the language that's absent in his gospel. Signs, the word is often coupled with wonders. Signs and wonders. That's a much better way, I think, for us to think of what these acts are rather than miracles is what we often call them. Biblical language, signs and wonders. But... The only time you find that designation, wonders, in the gospel is one instance on Jesus' lips in chapter 4. Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. That's it. It's the only use of wonders in this gospel. The most common denominator throughout the gospels for what we would refer to as miracles, though, is Mighty acts. It's one word in the original language. It's a word that conveys power. Completely absent from John's gospel. Never refers to Jesus' miracles as mighty works or mighty acts. 
So marvels or wonders leave one in awe. Power demonstrates power. And that language is almost, save that one use of wonders, completely absent from John's gospel, and he refers to them exclusively as signs. Wonders leave in all, powers demonstrate power, signs signify. Now it's true that throughout the Gospels, the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, there is significance to the mighty acts and the marvels that Jesus does. And it's true that as we read through John, that the signs demonstrate power and they leave one in all. But there is a difference of emphasis. Bruce Milne marks it well, writing, The distinction can be put this way. For the synoptic writers, Jesus' miracles are actual occasions of the incursion of the kingdom of God. They're the power of the future breaking into the presence. The kingdom come. If you were with us through Matthew, I think you saw that quite strikingly again and again that whenever Jesus was doing these acts it was the presence of God's redemptive kingdom breaking into the present for John miracles though no less real as historical acts of supernatural power are more symbolic they point beyond themselves to Jesus and his significance put more succinctly the synoptic miracles are essentially eschatological That's that study of the end. It's the end breaking into the present. But more succinctly, the synoptic miracles are essentially eschatological. John's essentially Christological. So whereas wonders all one with the power of the age to come breaking into the present, signs signify the presence of the one who is among them. They they speak in the present to His presence. Who is this? What then is the significance of this sign? With some, it's easy. Feeding of the 5,000, you have Jesus shortly speaking to many of that same crowd, I am the bread of life. There you go. With this one, there's no discourse. There's no elaboration. No interaction follows the sign. You're left hanging. Where does the significance lie? So we need to keep that question at the front of our minds as we work our way through this narrative. Where does the significance of this sign lie? As we zoom in, we need to be looking for cues to zoom out. And as we zoom out, we're then looking for justification whether or not we should keep zooming out and taking in more and more of that theme, that image, to grasp what is being spoken of here. What we're doing is biblical theology, but we want to do it responsibly. We want to do it with warrant. So all this means we need to be patient. And really, this is a rule you need to carry with you throughout any of your biblical study is rather than quickly wanting to grasp them and bring them into your world, don't ever do that. The link between, uh, the link you have to the text is your immutable God. So immerse yourself into their world. Learn of who God is and know that He is still who He was then. As we begin, the first thing we learn about their day is that it was the third day. Now, a grave danger in looking for significance is that of finding it everywhere, including where it is not. So can you see why someone hunting for significance is reading along in the text and they read the third day, and boy, they run with that. You see? The third day, resurrection. Now, there are many small details in our text that I think are subtle suggestions. You're not meant to lean on them real hard. They... they, they just give this hint and a kind of flavor to the text. There are many details like that here, but I'm certain this is not one of them. I don't think you're meant to go there with this little detail. The third day is no doubt to be reckoned from the last one mentioned. So the third day from the last one mentioned, and if you recall chapter 1, we saw this phrase 
again and again. The next day, the next day, the next day. And so from that reckoning, we've now arrived at either the sixth day, depending on how you tease out some of the more vague parts of the week that John is laying before you, or more likely, the best reading of the text, I believe, has us now at the seventh day. The seventh day ends with this sign. And I do think there is some significance to that. We zoom out a little bit and we remember chapter 1 opened with a lot of this creation kind of imagery. In fact, that's exactly what it's speaking of. In the beginning was the Word. All things were made through Him and without Him was not anything made that was made. And then John goes into this first week of Jesus' ministry. A week of new creation where He's calling into being A new Israel with words like, follow me. That detail, I think, is significant. This sign does testify to Jesus as the Lord of creation. The one who, by the word of His power, holds the universe together. The one in whom all things hold together, Colossians 1.17. He's the Lord of creation, turns water into wine. C.S. Lewis wrote, God creates the vine and teaches it to draw up water by its roots and, with the aid of the sun, to turn water into a juice which will ferment and take on certain qualities. Thus, every year from Noah's time till ours, God turns water into wine. That men fail to see. Either like the pagans, they refer the process to some finite spirit. Bacchus, Dionysus, or else, like the moderns, they attribute real and ultimate causality to the chemical and other material phenomena, which all that our senses can discover in it. But when Christ at Cana makes the water into wine, the mask is off. The miracle has only half its effect if it only convinces us that Christ is God. It will have its full effect. If whenever we see a vineyard or drink a glass of wine, we remember that here works he who sat at the wedding party in Cana. Everywhere you look, Jesus is doing this stunning thing. Now, Lewis was echoing Augustine, who 1,500 years earlier wrote, The miracle indeed of our Lord Jesus Christ, whereby he made the water into wine, is not marvelous to those who know that it was God's doing. For he who made wine on that day at the marriage feast, in those six water pots, which he commanded to be filled with water, the self-same does this every year in vines. For even as that which the servants put into the water parts was turned into wine by the doing of our Lord, so in like manner also is what the clouds pour forth changed into wine by the doing of the same Lord. But we do not wonder at the latter because it happens every year. It has lost its marvelousness by its constant recurrence. We are surrounded by marvels. You're sitting on words right now. That's it. Oh, you can break down the content of it scientifically, but you get to a point where all you have is pure energy at a basic level. And who is the power behind that which you sit on? It's your Lord. He does this. He transforms water into wine by means of a plant sucking up water from the ground. And then a chemical process happening to the juices that are produced thereby. Here, it's simply that the Son of God incarnate, walking among us, as Lewis says, takes off the mask and He decides to cut out all the middleman and work directly. It's faster if you just let me do it. But really, I think all of this is just suggestive. It's like a few notes in a song that that you know are from another song, but the melody continues carrying you along elsewhere. It's a subtle thing. It's an aside. It's, It's not the emphasis, but you will see it harmonizes beautifully when the emphasis, with the emphasis when we get there. But be patient. On the third day, Then we find Jesus, His disciples, at this wedding feast. They've been invited at this wedding. They've been invited to it. Jesus with His disciples, His mother. 
And so the first miracle Jesus does is, takes place at a wedding. Might there be some significance to that? The Old Testament largely closes with Israel being sent away with a certificate of divorce, Jeremiah 3.8, for her harlotry, her unfaithfulness, her covenant infidelity. And though God promises restoration and she returns from exile, things are never the same. She's under occupation right now. Things are not the same. No Messiah sits on David's throne. Weddings are celebrations. They're feasts. Feasts that could last up to a week. But spiritually for Israel, it it is as though there is still famine. There's no feasting. Covenant has not been fully renewed. If she's rejoicing, she's doing so, though there be no fruit on the vine. Like Habakkuk, she's rejoicing by faith. Ezekiel tells us of the bride of Christ, made beautiful by His love. And then how she uses her God-blessed beauty to attract other lovers. And so God forsakes her. And then her other lovers forsake her. And she's left destitute. And yet God promises to renew covenant. Isaiah speaks of this. Of the anointed one who would grant to those who mourn in Zion to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes. And now alongside all this wedding imagery, we have also this feast imagery that's brought into it. So Isaiah 25 and 6 says, On this mountain, Yahweh of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food, full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined. Expounding on this, Douglas Jones writes, Throughout Scripture and later history, feasting stands as the central expression of celebration. Through Isaiah, God has promised a messianic future in which He would wipe away tears from all faces. And He depicts this redemption not in terms of intellectual satisfaction or quiet piety, but in terms of an extravagant feast. And in this mountain shall Yahweh of hosts make unto the people a feast of fat things, a feast of wines on the lees, of fat things full of marrow, wines on the lees well refined, choice pieces, well refined wines, fat things, all the blessings which anemic moderns say we shouldn't have. Redemption doesn't appear to be a low-cal, cholesterol-free affair. Is this something of what's signified here? Well, again, I think John at best at this point is only offering a subtle hint. This is, this is an appetizer, but it whets the appetite for what is the emphatic focus yet to come. Be patient. Consider how this episode does, though, harmonize with something of our Lord's demeanor that most people don't get right. Spoken of in Luke 7, verses 33 through 34. Jesus says, John the Baptist has come eating and eating no bread, drinking no wine, and you say, he has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Now that contrast, I think, is really helpful in seeing where John is wanting to take you here. John, no feasting, Jesus feasts. At the wedding, again, this likely week-long event, the wine runs out. Verse 3. And you learn this by means of Mary approaching Jesus. Very few, it seems, know that this has happened. The master of the feast doesn't know that there's not any wine. His surprise is that, oh, I understand You ran out of wine, you went and got some more wine, that wine just happened to be better than the wine you got. No, he's surprised, what are you doing? Why did you wait for this? Why did you wait to give me the good wine until now? It's not how we do it. You see, no one's in the know, and Mary's in the know. And this lets you know something. Isn't it peculiar? Mary knows this when others don't, that the servants are with her and she commands the servants. 
I think it's clear they're invited to this wedding because they know the groom. They know the groom's family. He's who's responsible for providing the feast. So they're very likely related. Mary is overseeing this. She's in the know. She's seeing that it's being taken care of. To grasp what's happening here, you need to understand the importance of wine to the feast, of Mary to the wine, and of Jesus to Mary. So you got something of... of of wine to the feast, but unfold this a bit more. Wine is critical to the, of Mary to the wine, but the wine to the feast. Wine is critical to celebration. Psalm 104, you cause the grass to grow for the livestock. That's what it's for. Plants for man to cultivate. That's what they're for. That he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man. Oil to make his face shine, bread to strengthen man's heart. Wine to gladden man's heart. Douglas Jones says that the central image of celebration is feasting, and I would say the central image of that feasting celebration is wine. No wine, no party. This would have been, again, the responsibility of the groom. It would have been not only a serious social faux pas then for there to be no wine, it even could have involved, some have tried to demonstrate, a financial liability of the groom's family owing then the bride's family. Mary and Jesus then are here as part of his family. This explains why she's in the know, why the master isn't. She's come to him. Now there's no wine. If you have ever been involved in planning a wedding, if you've been married to a woman planning a wedding, I think you can imagine something of what's happening at this point. I don't think it has near the intensity it would have in this ancient culture. To sense some of it, recall the last time you were having dinner guests over. More, more of a a, a kind of serious dinner that needed to happen, and you hear the gasp, <gasps> I forgot. Then there's the frantic run to the grocery store, and they're out of it too. So you go to the second grocery store. That's something of what's happening here. And so where does Mary turn? She turns to her firstborn son. I think it's critical you, you get that kind of idea of what's happening. Joseph has probably been out of the picture for some time. Jesus has been acting as head of household. You can gather that from verse 12. He went down to Capernaum. I think Joseph has probably died early in Jesus' childhood. He went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples. And they stayed there for a few days. So, Jesus acting as head of the household, she comes to him, her son. She asks implicitly when she states, there's no wine. She's telling him that. She's asking for him to help. What's she asking for him to do? It's the apocryphal gospels that have Jesus doing tricks as a child. The inspired accounts say this is his first sign. I don't think she was coming to him, asking him to do some miraculous act. I think she's coming to him, wanting him to manifest the profound wisdom that she has known to mark him all his days. She knows she can count on him. She has been. She's seen his wisdom. And now she's asking him to take care of this problem. And Jesus' problem, uh, Jesus' reply, excuse me, creates distance, not disrespect, it creates distance with three elements. First, there's the clear one, you understand, but I think you read it as disrespect. We, we all do, naturally, more than we would uh, uh, just a distancing kind of statement. He refers to her as woman, but it has more of the sense of lady or madam or ma'am in its usage. It's the same way that he addresses the woman at the well in chapter 4 and verse 21. But the peculiar thing is it's never used by a son 
in all of ancient Greek literature that we know of, it's never used of a son addressing his mother, except by Jesus. And Jesus is only, uh, Mary is only brought forward in John's narrative twice, at the beginning of Jesus' ministry and at the end. And in both instances, he refers to her as woman. And it's the second one, I think, that clues you in that this is not by itself a term of disrespect. It creates distance, but not disrespect. Chapter 19, verse 26, when Jesus saw his mother, you notice how the writer of John's gospel constantly refers to her as Jesus' mother. Jesus, though, refers to her twice as woman. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. I think there's the same element of even distancing in that statement. I think this sets up the rest of Jesus' words to his mother here. Jesus creates distance between he and his mother with this statement. You can't relate to me in this instance from this time on. You can't relate to me as mother-son. Because I'm now, with my ministry having commenced, I'm about my father's business. There's not just an echo here, but I think a profound amplification of that singular episode that we have from Jesus' childhood in Luke 2. He said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And when he and he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them, his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. So Jesus fulfills up all the righteousness. He was the perfect son. He was submissive to him, but now the point has come where she cannot lean on him in that kind of way. He is acting in his public ministry as the Christ. And so he says, woman, now she must come to him as Lord. You have then this idiomatic expression that literally comes across more like, what to me and to you? Again, the idea is that this creates distance. If Jesus is to act, it's not to settle some family crisis that his mother has brought to him. It has reference to who he is, you see. And then finally, Jesus tells her, his hour has not yet come. This hour will be referred to multiple times in John, again and again and again. In the first half, it's not yet. In the second half, it's right there. The second half of John is about this hour, the hour of his glorification, his public manifested glory with his being lifted up on the cross and lifted up from the grave. If Mary is expecting Jesus to take public control of this situation, manifesting something of who he is, she needs to know this is not the hour. But if we think all of this is a refusal, we're wrong. This is not a refusal, this is a rebuke. It's a gracious rebuke. We shouldn't think that Jesus is cajoled into His first miracle by His mother. That would be a misstep. I don't think Mary walks away from this situation with a smirk on her face, like that particular woman that has just uh, told her husband to do something, and he dismisses it outright, but she walks away knowing, It'll be done. I don't think that's how this plays out. I think Mary walks away from this encounter as submissive as she instructs the servants to be. Mary has been put in her place, but she has placed her problem in the hands of her son, her Lord. And she knows whatever happens, she can trust him. How often has she trusted him? And now she knows More so, she can trust whatever's right, whatever should be done, it's in His hands. Our attention is then diverted to six large stone water jars. And it's made clear that these are for the Jewish rites of purification. That's that little detail that I think as you begin to zoom out, you really begin to sense what this sign signifies. 
These are for the Jewish rites of purification. We zoom out. You remember chapter 1, we see this delegation sent to John, and they're asking him, who are you, and why are you baptizing? What's this watery purification kind of thing that you're doing? And they don't get it. On the other side of this episode, we find Jesus cleansing the temple. They have corrupted it by all their greedy practices. Then in chapter 3, you have Nicodemus come to Jesus. And Jesus tells him, you must be born of water or by water and the Spirit. Which is a reference to Ezekiel 36. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And with all that, I think you can begin to sense that there are two comparisons that John is setting before us here. One is a mere comparison, this alongside that. The other one is a comparison of conflict. So one of mere contrast and one of conflict. Look at the difference between these two. That's the first one. And then look at how these two things are opposed to one another. That's the second. So first, the contrast. The mere contrast would have been between the old and the new. I don't think it without significance that these water jars, which have to do with the rites of purification, are filled up to the brim, and then wine. John the Baptist stands in this transitional place between the old and the new, and Jesus in Luke 16 says, the law and the prophets were until John... Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached and everyone forces his way into it. So remember, John is portrayed as austere. Jesus, Jesus as genial, jovial. And the disciples notice this contrast. And they ask. And they said to him, Luke 5, 33-39. The disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees. But yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, Can you make the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them. And then they will fast in those days. And he told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. No one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled. The skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one, after drinking old wine, desires new, for he says the old is good. The old is being fulfilled. The new is coming into being. Purification is done. Let the celebration commence. You see how this then brings in the wedding imagery alongside of it. The wedding isn't the focus. It's old to new that's more in view. And add this possible detail to it. How many of you have always conjectured, as I have, that it was the water in the stone jars that was turned to wine? You there? Where did the water that was in the stone jars come from? Our text, I believe, suggests it came from a well. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. Where does this water come from? And he said to them, now draw some out. You always have thought, draw from the jars. The word draw there is the exact word they would use to speak of drawing water from a well. Fill up the stone jars, drawing from the well. Now draw some out and present to the master of the feast. I think that's the most likely explanation. It would have been a bit odd to use stone water jars for purification to turn water. There could have been a a bite more into their practices by that. Would have been thought unclean probably by them. 
But I think it's this fresh water drawn. So, the old is first filled, and then from the same source, the new is drawn. But there's also this conflict that's presented here as well. I think this is the more emphatic of the two contrasts presented. It's not simply that the old is set alongside the new. It's that their elaborations on the old is set alongside His fulfilling the old. Mark 7, 1 through 5 gives a lot of insight into these Jewish rites of purification. Now when the Pharisees gathered to Him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of His disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And, they, and when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And Jesus, in his answer in Matthew's gospel to that question, makes this statement. Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. They are what to defile a person, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. And it's this same kind of conflict between their traditions... And Jesus, who's come to fulfill the law that you see in the next episode that's laid before you. As He cleanses the temple from all their defilements, and He fulfills the Scriptures as the Christ. Their interpretation of the old is in conflict with His fulfilling the old. And what underlies this conflict is what John has already presented to us in chapter 1. John is bearing witness, and they don't get it. They don't understand. They don't know. They don't receive His testimony. And I think this is exemplified by what happens. The master of the feast doesn't know. Who knows? The servants know. The disciples know. But the master of the feast doesn't know. John 1.11. He came to His own and His own did not receive Him. He came into this world, the world did not know him. The officials failed to receive John's testimony. But Andrew, the Galilean fisherman, he hears it and he follows Christ. He hears, behold, the Lamb of God. He hears John's testimony and he follows. And then, then the master of the feast pulls aside the bridegroom to deliver something of a rebuke, verse 10. The best wine is supposed to be served first. Because then after they've drank and their hearts are gladdened and their palates are not as fresh, well, then you can serve the cheap stuff. If you serve the good stuff later, then they don't know how good you are. They don't know how good I am as master of the feast. You serve that first and then you serve the cheap stuff. But with Jesus, the best lies ahead. The garden will be eclipsed by the new creation. The old fading away does not mean loss. It means greater glory. The Lord of creation saves His best work for last. Holy matrimony and marital bliss at their highest are but a faint tasting of the joy of the bride of Christ in her consummation. The old was good, the new is better. For 4,000 years, God kept His best vintage in the cellar. And then for 30 more years, bringing it to room temperature in the sun so that it might be poured out with every blessing in it. This was the first of Jesus' signs. I don't think it's without significance that it was done at a wedding. 
that it involved water jars being turned, uh, be, that were used for Jewish rites of purification, that it involved water being turned into wine, that it was done quietly so that only a few were in the know. And yet, I don't think that any of those things are especially the focal point yet. What is the significance of this first sign? Verse 11, this, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. Not as that hour will do. Doesn't manifest it in that way. But it does manifest his glory and his disciples see something of his glory at this point and they believe. What glory is being manifested? John has already told us. John 1, 14, 16 through 18, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. The glory is of the only begotten Son of God, full of grace and truth. For from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. You see where John's going now? Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made Him known. I think that's the critical text for understanding what's happening at this wedding at Cana. It's a manifestation of Jesus Christ full of grace and truth. Have you seen His glory? The glory is of the only begotten of the Father. This first sign is going where all the signs will go. Yes, there's some distinct ways that the signs speak to this, but this is what every sign in John's gospel is getting at. We saw His glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. This is why John wrote this gospel. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these signs are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. How is it that you come to believe He's the Christ? You see His glory. The sign conveys to you His glory and seeing it, you believe and believing it, you have eternal life. The glory of the Son, full of grace and truth, the only begotten of the Father, is manifest and radiating from this Scripture. It's just pouring out from it. Do you see it? Do you see truth as solid as His rebuke? And grace as rich as this wine? Do you see it? Believe it. Drink it down with faith. And find a spring of eternal life welling up inside of you. Don't look to the religion of man. Don't look to religious rites of purification. Don't look to anything you do. Look to the Christ. Look to His hour where this glory was, same glory comes to its climactic and full manifestation. Look to that hour. Look to that hour whenever He was lifted up, full of grace. To bear judgment for sinners. Look to the empty tomb, His resurrection, shouting the truth. He is the Son of God. Behold the glory of the only begotten Son, beloved of the Father, forsaken for sinners. Risen, defeating their foes. Look to him who was defiled so that his defiled bride might be washed clean without any spot or blemish so that the resurrected Christ might present her to himself in splendor and beauty. Look to him, believe, and you will be part of that bride. Invitation to the wedding feast is before you. See the sign and all that it communicates that Christ is the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. 
Believe on that and feast with Him eternally. Let's pray. Holy Father, thank You for what's set before us. A feast. Feast on Christ. Father, forgive us of our foolish discontent whenever you have put before us so rich a fare. Forgive us our unbelief whenever our signs are put before us that shout such grace and truth and glory. Father, have mercy on the sinners in our midst who as we once did not know, they do not know. And open their eyes to behold something of your glory in the face of your Son today. Beholding it to believe and believing it to have eternal life. In the good name of our Bridegroom, We cry out to you. We need rebuke. We know you will not refuse us. We come in Jesus' name. We know we can place all of our heart there and know it's taken care of. The best will come to us in Christ. So yes, we cry out in his name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon audio from Meridian Church. Please feel free to share this resource with others. We only ask that you do not alter the content in any way. Again, you can find more resources at meridianchurch.com.